Hello, and welcome to the London Writer Salon podcast. I'm Matt. And I'm Parle. And each week we sit down with a writer that we admire to talk about the craft of writing and the art of building a successful and sustainable writing career. These interviews are recorded live with our global writing community. If you would like to join us for the next recording or write with us at our daily Writer's Hour writing sessions, head to LondonWritersSalon.com for more information. In this episode, we speak to Simone Chenaney, the author behind the book series, The School for Good and Evil, which has sold more than 3 million copies worldwide and is now a Netflix film. Simone is also behind Beasts and Beauty, where he reimagines old stories into fresh and rather dark fairy tales. Now, we interviewed Simone back in October 2021, and we spoke to him about his career as a writer so far, from his early days working in the film industry, overcoming failure and rejection, how he worked as a tutor to make ends meet, and how he eventually came to write and pitch his first book series, The School for Good and Evil. He's a fascinating guy. He's both extremely creative and very disciplined. And he tells us about how he balances his deep creative work alongside exercise, work and life admin. Of course, we talk about the power of myth and fairy tale. That's something he's passionate about. This is a really fun interview with a very, very talented writer. We hope you enjoy our conversation with Saman Chenaini. And if you're loving these conversations and want to help support the podcast, please rate and review us wherever you listen to us. Each month we give away prizes to our reviewers, things like mugs and stickers and other goodies. Plus, it's just a nice way to show us your love and to help keep us going. Thanks so much for listening. Let's welcome Saman to the London Writer Salon. Hello. Thank you for having me. Uh, well, we are super pleased and so grateful that you've joined us, especially during this busy week of promotion. And of course, we're scattered all over the world. But if we could be anywhere in the world, the three of us and everyone here listening, where would you love us to be? Uh, London. I just got back on Sunday and every time... I've been to London maybe like 60 times and it's the only place in the world I want to live but I never pulled the trigger just because you know when you're a writer I just feel like a lot of your career especially for when you write for kids is based in the states because you have to go to schools you have to do all the festivals and all that sort of stuff and so just the distance would be a little difficult with all the logistics, but I've always loved London and I've loved the UK more than I love the States. I just think I feel at home there. Is there any particular in London you'd like us to be? Is there a particular section of London that you like or a bar or restaurant? I change where I stay every time I go. That's sort of the fun, I think, just because I've been there so many times. I try to find a new neighborhood every single time. So I don't know. Like, I just feel like to me, the, the joy of London is you can walk 20 minutes and be in a completely different landscape. You know? So I'm hopeful that at some point in my life, I'll get to live there for a little bit of time. Yeah. Get outside of America once and for all. Okay. Well, London would love to have you. Uh, maybe we'll be at the, maybe we'll take you to the South Bank. That's where my man and I would love to host these interviews at the South Bank. I would love to take you back in time to when you first thought about being a writer. What's your earliest memory of wanting to write? I mean, I think for me... I don't think it ever was a conscious decision to want to write. And I think that's different from a lot of writers in that they always had that ambition. It was always what their dream career was. And for me, it was a talent that kept chasing me. So like, 
it just was what I knew I was good at, but I didn't necessarily enjoy it. I found it quite torturous and I found it difficult. And I just, I had dreams of a career that somehow would yield more money in an easier way, you know? So when I went to school, I thought I was going to be a consultant or a banker or something like that. You know, when I graduated college, that's what I pursued. I thought I was going to go to business school. I thought I was going to sort of do the entrepreneurial path. Like I never really considered writing as a feasible option, but it was really the only thing I was good at. And over time, I think that impulse kept coming back. I was always writing something like, cause I couldn't stop. It was just such an addiction and such second nature. I just never considered it a career path until I got fired from every other possible job that I was trying to do and realized that at some point you kind of have to do what you're good at for a living. Otherwise, you know, your career is going to be very short. And now you have a wonderful career and you're best known as a fantasy author writing for children. Why fantasy and why children of all the types of writing that you could do? Was there a formative moment for you that kind of that genre that group spoke to you? You know, I never thought I was going to write for kids when I was working on early, early drafts of School for Gnebo. I really thought it was going to be for adults. I thought it was going to be a book like Wicked by Gregory Maguire, which was a book that I loved. And I think what ended up happening was I had studied uh, Harry Potter quite closely when I read it because it felt like such a jailbreak from the way kids' books had been before. You know, that first one is sort of traditional, but then they get bigger and more complex and you're in the realm of a new kind of genre. It's almost Dickensian in, in how sort of elaborate and detailed it is. And I think something in that triggered in me of, oh, there is room for sophisticated, complex fantasy within the kids' world. And yes, there had been so much of it before, but I just think it had a new sort of quality to it. So I just think that that book's uh, seeded in my mind of what was possible. And I think when I started working on it again, coming back to School for Good and Evil, that series sort of influenced the shaping of it. And I think it opened up that new genre that, of course, so many of us ran with, you know, this kind of renaissance of young adult literature. Mm. And we read that you also took a fairy tales course at, at Harvard. And I think, was this back at undergrad? This is undergrad. It was with um, Maria Tatar. It was a freshman seminar. And, you know, it was only 10 of us in the class. And I think there was something about that course where we studied the original stories. And there was such a gap between those and the Disney, Disney versions that it sort of awakened me to the possibility of you know, because I had always, I'd grown up with those Disney stories and, and I just saw how much power they had over children as, and me included. And I think when I learned the original stories, I thought, well, imagine if we could bring these out to young audiences and even older audiences that weren't aware of them. What a difference in the world it would make, you know, because fairy tales are in our DNA, but we were being programmed with the wrong version. Apparently, especially in the States where Disney was the dominant version, like in Europe, you're intelligent enough to know the other ones that exist, but Americans don't because you know how Americans are. And so we grew up with these sort of um, Disney tales and never quite got the real stories. And so I think that also was another impetus to really, when I was writing the School for Good and Evil and in all my work that has happened since, to try to, to refresh what fairy tales are in people's heads. Mm. 
That's great. Yeah, it seems like there's definitely that through line through all of your work around kind of reimagining these fairy tales in, in both your School for Good and Evil series and Beasts and Beauty. Is there anything else that you took from that? Obviously, it seemed like a big inspiration. Is there anything that you took as far as storytelling craft from that course that kind of helped inform how you told these stories? I mean, I think that the key is we know the fairy tales because we've heard them vaguely, but I don't know if we've read them. And I think it's important to actually read those Grimm's tales because the way the language sort of skips along in this kind of like, it's almost hard to pin down. It feels very surface, but there's so much happening underneath. And I think, you know, the way they're written is really the way our kind of souls operate. It'll, they almost feel like dreams written on the page, you know, the way that they make sense for a moment and then they don't make sense. And then they pop back into reason and logic. And then there's a sudden twist of shock and horror. Like it feels like life itself. And they're so kind of expertly created because they really are honed through hundreds of years of oral tradition and passed down. So when they're written on the page, you know, uh, second to the Bible, you've got stories that are tested by time. So I just think that those should be required reading for everybody. And I think before I read Beast and Beauty, I would just go back and read these stories a hundred times and really try to get that way of storytelling in my head. So that when I went to write my own versions, at least I had the style and the quality fresh in my imagination. Actually, Saman, I picked up this original folk and fairy tales, Brothers, Brothers Grimm, because, I, because I'd heard you talk about it. And I can see, I can really see that comparison with your book, magical, double-layered. Yeah, I think it's a different language. It's a different language. And it's funny because there's been a couple, I don't use quotation marks in the book. And a bunch of people have asked like, well, why didn't you use quotation marks in, when people speak? And it never occurred to me to use quotation marks because it's all a quotation. That's what the fairy tales are. They're all sort of orally passed down tales. So what you're reading is kind of a spoken word tale. Like everything has to be this kind of like smooth flow, you know, and getting that quality is incredibly difficult to mimic. But um, I think it's the closest way. It's the deepest and closest kind of mirror of actual storytelling somehow of the DNA of storytelling. So, so Mom, we are going to go into Beasts and Beauty, but before that, we would like to talk a little bit about The School for Good and Evil. Now a six-book series, it follows the adventures of best friends Sophie and Agatha at The School for Good and Evil, an enchanted institution where children are trained to become fairy tale heroes or villains. Such a cool concept. And we're looking at your Instagram, and your, I think your most recent photo is you with, I think, a bunch of the cast members of the film that yeah just in London last week um throwing a big party for them because uh the director is Paul Feig who's a genius and made spy and ghostbusters and freaks and geeks and and so many kind of you know iconic movies and shows and you know he's in the process of putting his edit together and so I just wanted to come over and visit with him because uh, we finished shooting in July and I was on set in April and May when COVID was sort of at its height. So it just was a different kind of way of being on set, you know, like it was just constantly masked, a lot of rules. I was hanging out with the cast a lot, but you just always felt a little stressed. And now that things are a little more relaxed, especially in London, it felt like a good time to come over, check in with Paul and just throw a big party for everyone. So we had a sort of two night reunion where everyone got to hang out. And because the books revolve around a school, 
filled with teenagers and the cast is a little older. They're late teenagers and early 20s. It's this surreal experience of having characters come to life and them also being my friends and me also feeling like their camp counselor slash schoolmaster. So it's a really fun, interesting experience. And I'm trying to hang out with them as much as I can when the opportunity arises. So cool. Imagine having the characters that you've been spending so much time in your head and then seeing them brought to life in person must be such a fantastic and, and surreal experience. And we heard that you, the original concept for this was when you're at film school, uh, for school, uh, school for good and evil. Is that correct? And if so, how much can you like place us the timeline between when you first had that idea and then when you finished writing the first book in that series? And then of course, now we're in 2021 movies about to come out. When was that the seed of the idea? Yeah, it must've been 2008, 2009, but as early as 2004, I had the idea for a series where a girl gets kidnapped to kind of a fairy tale world, but she doesn't know how the stories go. That was sort of the original concept. Sort of a modern girl gets kidnapped to a world, doesn't know how fairy tales work, never learn the stories, and, you know, sort of goes through them that way. It kind of a reverse enchanted to some extent. And, you know, I played with it. I worked with it, did as much as I could with it. And then, I don't know, went on to other things. And then I think it was in 2010, 2010, after a few other projects, film projects had fallen apart. I was writing for Ardman at the time over in Bristol. I was writing screenplays for them uh, and working on movies. And I think they had lost their deal and they had to get rid of like half their staff or something. And so all of a sudden I had to kind of start from scratch. And the fairy tale idea came back to me, but now it was different. Now I had this sort of idea of the two schools, you know, and, and, Two friends, one who who seemed like a princess, one who seemed like a witch getting switched into the wrong ones. So I think there was like a four-year period where the idea had kind of gone fallow and then morphed and become something else. And by the time it had come back to me, you know, I remember I was in London when I had the idea. I was walking in Regent's Park, I think, and suddenly had this kind of bolt of an idea of like, you know, a girl in pink falling into a black castle and a girl in black falling into a pink castle. And I think as I started to sort of play with it, realize that there was a whole whole kind of universe built underneath it. So, yeah, I think my sort of way of coming up with ideas and processing ideas is that I let the elves do all the work. I don't really try to think about things consciously. I just know that when an idea comes to me, that it has been down there for a long period of time. And I tend to pay attention to it if an idea comes strongly, like this one did. At what point during the editing and drafting process did you start to believe in it? No, or maybe, I don't know if there was a point where you thought, yeah, I think this is legs. I think I can go somewhere with this. Well, the truth was it was such a large world that I hadn't planned it as a novel. I thought it was going to be a movie. And so I was working on it as a treatment for a screenplay. And usually treatments run about 20 pages for a 120-page screenplay. And this treatment was getting longer and longer and longer. I think it was 90 pages by the time I was done with it, which is longer than some screenplays. And it became clear about halfway through just the outline that I was sort of building my own Potter-esque universe. And it was sort of this feeling of, oh, no, this is a book. I'm not going to just write a book, you know, on spec. I think I was just kind of afraid of the idea of doing it. I don't know. I just feel like I'd had so many creative failures at that point, just in terms of not getting bought or made or, or things like that. You know, like nothing had happened um, in my years since film school, the three years since I'd come out of film school. And so I was working with a producer on another project 
who's a, her name is Jane Starts. She did Ella Enchanted, uh, Indian in the Cupboard, Babysitter's Club. She was sort of the go-to producer for if you had a high-end children's literature adapt- adaptation. And I said, look, I'm working on this thing. Can you read it and tell me what you think? And she read it and she was like, this is clearly books and not just a book, but a series of books. And she's like, I have an idea. Why don't I represent it as the agent? Because I know every publisher in New York and you know, I'll be the producer on a movie adaptation if there's ever a movie adaptation. And we'll send it out to publishers basically as almost like a manuscript, but here's the proposal for, for books, you know? And because of her clout, she was able to go to 17 different publishers, you know, and sort of like put her sort of vouch for me as an author. And 16 of them came back and was like, we'd love the proposal, but there's like, we need to see at least like 200 pages of a book or something to buy. You know, we can't just do it on faith on, I think I'd written two chapters, you know, two chapters and a 90 page proposal. And then HarperCollins panicked thinking that the other 16 were bidding on it because they had gotten crossed wires or some mixed information or something. And they bought all three books before I had really ever written any of it. And I think that was sort of, sometimes you need luck in the universe. And I think that was my lucky break because I don't think I had the fortitude and the courage at that point, given all the failures to have then written that book all the way through on my own. I wasn't there yet. Maybe in the future I would have gotten there, but I wasn't there at the time. That sounds incredible. Also sounds like a lot of pressure uh, for you to write that book. It was, and that was the bad, that was a difficult part. So everyone's like, oh, you're so lucky. Like, I wish that could be me. I don't know. I think it was a very sort of scary place to be because it was, you had just signed three years of your life, three books, meaning if the first one didn't perform, you were going to then write two novels for no one else to read. You know, I mean, for literally no one. And so it was scary. I think it was the, that year of writing the first School for Evil was the most stressed I've ever been in my life because I had never written a novel before. It kept deviating off the outline. And in films, if you deviate, when you're writing a screenplay, if you deviate from the outline, you are screwed. Like something has gone terribly wrong. And so when it was happening in a novel constantly, I was like, oh my God, this is not going to work. You know, all those sorts of chaotic thoughts. It was a difficult, difficult year. But uh, I think I learned everything I needed to learn about my process, at least during that first book. Can you place us in your life a little bit? I know you said that you have just come off of series of failures. What was your life? What did your life look like? Where were you? What were you working on for paid work? If you were, what did that look like? And how were you writing? Yeah, it was a very sad existence because I I went from supposing to direct a movie, working at Ardman, having a TV project. I had a movie, a TV project, and I was full-time employed at, at Ardman and everything was looking up. I think I was like in some British film magazine as like a big up and coming star. And then I lost all three in one week. It just was, it was one of those things where the universe was like, okay, enough of this, you know? So I had no money because Ardman wasn't paying that great. The TV project hadn't paid and um, I hadn't been paid for the movie because it hadn't gotten, wasn't formally greenlit yet. And so um I came back to New York. I was totally broke. I think I was from film school. I was like a couple hundred thousand dollars in debt. And luckily, I was very lucky. My friend um, introduced me to the world of SAT tutoring. And because I'd gone to Harvard undergrad, there's a whole market of New York parents who entrust their child's standardized testing future to tutors, you know, and pay quite well. So 
I quickly sort of built a, a following within like a year and a half doing that while I was writing the proposal for School for Good and Evil. So by the time I started writing the book, I was tutoring about five hours a night from four to nine o'clock, four to nine, four to nine thirty, seven nights a week, because that was how I was trying to make money and pay back all my college loans. And then I would write from nine to three. So, you know, what's funny is that everyone's always talking about now that I just have a lot of stamina that I can like do press and work on the book and travel and do all these different things. And because I spent four or five years doing that nine to nine, nine, a 12 or 13 hour intellectual day. And so any day now feels like a vacation compared to what I went through for those years, you know, and I tutored all the way through book three. I felt like I never, I was nervous about depending on books as my income. I didn't feel like that would be fun. It felt like it would be too much pressure. Even once I had the movie deal, I still kept tutoring. It was only like when it just, the books had gotten too big and there just became a day where it was like, okay, I can't do it anymore. But I enjoyed when the writing wasn't the sole source of income because then writing felt so free. It just felt like at any point in time, there was no pressure on it. That's such a good point. And I think this is at the heart of so many writers' anxieties of balancing, wanting to get paid well for the work that you do, your creative work. But also, that's a tough thing to do. And so just the way that you, the way you were able to hold that in your head, it seems very smart. Yeah, I just, it's a tough one, right? For writers. It's difficult because I think the issue is, is that you never know if your next thing is going to perform. So if you're sort of relying on books for your income, you can sort of make some bad decisions. And if you're running on your writing for your income, you can often make some bad decisions because, you know, writing is... I think, at least in the novel world, it comes from such a deep emotional place that if you're writing a book just for money, I don't know. I've never done it. You know, I'm sure I can under, and I know friends who have, and I don't think it's a particularly enjoyable experience because it's the competing impulse of your creative art now being used in a mercenary way. So I think rather than do that, it just makes more sense to write less and have another job that takes care of the mercenary part, you know? So during books one, two, and even three, I didn't have as long a writing day as I do now. Like now I can write from, you know, I just have more time to write, but I felt like back then I had less pressure. It just felt different because I knew that money was coming from something else. So, you know, the trade-off is there. I'm curious, do you have a backup plan even today? Like if everything turned sour in in next year or the year after, do you think about what you might do or do you feel secure? I mean, it's funny because I always been thinking about like what happens if this next book fails and I, you know, and at some point do I run out of money? Just because like also at some point your life gets expensive if, um, you know, you do become successful as a writer because in my case, I have to have a full-time assistant, you know, School for Good Evil is like a little corporation. So the overhead of the different people working on it, like it's, it's a lot of money. Like in terms of like what my life used to cost before School for Good Evil became a hit to after it became a hit is a spectacular jump. You know what I mean? Just in terms of the investment in building it because the publisher doesn't take care of everything. You know, like there's so much that has to come from our side. So I always think about what happens if all of that sort of goes away, what my life would look like. And I think it would just be reducing everything, 
moving somewhere a little cheaper and then starting from scratch and running a new book. You know, like I think we'd just be going back to the basics. The way I sort of think about it is I think of my life as a startup venture. The startup has, is doing well, it's growing. And as long as it keeps growing, then I'll keep investing in it. I'll keep pushing. I'll keep seeing how big it can get. And then if it blows up, then we shrink. We shrink our ambitions and then we start a new one. Really healthy approach. I'm curious about the commercial success behind that book, which it was and is a huge commercial success. Was there one or two things that you noticed really worked for you that turned the needle or was it just a collection of tactics step by step? It was a lot of different things, but I think, first of all, my film experience meant that I had a back then book trailers were not really a thing in the kids world. They just didn't work. And so we came in with a pretty cinematic one that got a lot of attention and it's ultimately what got Universal to buy the movie. Like someone slipped them the trailer. And I think when they saw the trailer, they saw a movie because that's how we framed it. We framed it almost like a movie trailer. Um, So that was a big help. Also, it's different for adults, but when you write for kids, you go into schools. And so I'd heard early on, like, okay, like on your book tour, you're going to go into three schools a day between 500 and 700 kids in an auditorium at a time that you have to entertain and convince to buy your book. And everyone was always like, oh, school visits are so tough. School visits are difficult. Like da da da. The kids are so badly behaved, blah, blah, blah. And I just thought, oh my God, what an opportunity. Like if you could put on a show and get these kids enthused, I mean, you have 500 kids there. Like, let's say you can, you really sort of do well, you can get 200 kids in that group to buy your book at a pop. So I started adding cities to my tour by paying more. So like Harper, my publisher only wanted me to do three cities. And I said, let me do eight. And so I literally put a lot of my tutoring money into adding five more cities on tour myself for that first tour. And I just put together a killer show that was, you know, videos and games and getting the kids on their feet and like making the book come alive in a really visceral way. And all of a sudden, every city I was going to was over in indexing in terms of sales. Meaning like if I did three schools in a day, I basically would drop this bomb in that town about the book. And months and years later, that city would still be over indexing because kids would read it and then tell their friends and their friends would see them carrying it around and all that sort of stuff. So that became my secret weapon was touring. And I was just always on tour, always in schools, always kind of pushing, pushing, pushing the book. So when COVID hit, that's been the hardest part. So with Beast and Beauty right now, I would be on tour doing three schools a day for the next month. And I can do sort of virtual visits and things like that, but it's different, you know? And so that's been the big reset is that's my secret weapon. So trying to figure out how to replicate that or when does it come back, you know, all that sort of stuff. First of all, kudos to you for entertaining so many children. It's no easy task. I used to take authors into schools for tours and it takes a lot to keep the children engaged and get them buying. I think it's a skill that just because of like in growing up, I did debate. I feel like I was just, I just was in theater. Like I just knew, I just had the skill set to be able to entertain kids. I knew what to do. And I think the books lend themselves to it because the books are quite renegade. Like I always get in trouble with adults and reviews online for the books being too kind of, provocative, you know, in every possible way. And so to go into the schools and sort of mimic that, basically being like, I'm the opposite of a teacher, I'm here to cause trouble, you know, kids sort of take to that. And that became sort of the shtick. I bet they loved you. And um, I'd love to move on to your latest book, Beast and Beauty. So you're retelling 
famous fairy tales with a twist with, you know, like you talked about multi-layered to some degree, it's ambiguous what's actually happening and it's real and it's direct. I wondered if we could talk about Snow White and what this story means to you. What is it about this story that you wanted to retell? It was the only story that I wrote out of order. So the rest of the book, I wrote exactly in the order that it is, like one after the other, each one fed the others. And Snow White, there was nothing I wanted to do with Snow White because it's such a boring story. Because what Snow White is really about is about the handoff between young women and old women in the context of beauty. The idea that at some point, a woman has to let go of her looks and understand that the youth is going to take over whether you like it or not. And the mirror is eventually going to tell you the truth, which is you are no longer the most beautiful woman in the land. It's such an elemental tale. But it's so clear in the original story, and there's, there's no way to update that. I just feel like it's so obvious. And so I didn't have anything I wanted to do with it. And then the George Floyd protests happened in the States, and there was a sort of reckoning of just the way culture is processed. And I started thinking about the fact that wouldn't it be interesting if Snow White was the only Black girl in her kingdom? Because if she's the only Black girl in her kingdom, then she has no mirrors in her fellow citizens that she is beautiful or worthy of respect or attention or anything like that, because she is the one that completely stands out. At the same time, if the mirror is saying she is the most beautiful in the land, who's going to believe it, right? The Wicked Queen's not going to believe it. Snow White's not going to believe it. The people are not going to believe it. And so to start from that position, this idea of like kind of being the metaphor for you know, culture has sort of given us a certain kind of archetype for what beauty is and brainwash all of us into to sort of going along with it and believing in it and using Snow White as the one little glimmer of hope to dismantle it. And that's what I thought would be a, a bigger ambition for that story. And what you've just said encapsulates it so much about why your writing is beautiful and why this book is beautiful. And it really points to how both adults and children can come to that book and have a different perspective on it, which leads me to a question about categorization and is it a children's book or is it an adult's book? It's a good question. Yeah, because in the when I was writing it, I remember thinking to myself, the big challenge with this is everyone's going to disagree as to who we're publishing it for, which I wanted because the grim stories are the same. Where do you put the grim stories in a bookstore? Because they're for kids. Are they for kids, but are they for adults? Like it's they really are for everyone. You know, they're sort of these elemental tales. So I just was like, you know, let's see. In my head, I, I didn't have an audience of mine other than I was going to stay true to the Grimm style and try to write it for everybody. And so in the States, it's published for 10 and up because that there's very few categories in the States. There's eight and up, 10 and up, and then 13 and up. Those are your only options. And we felt like 10-year-olds could handle it, even if it is a little dark. But then in the UK, it's published as an adult book by Fourth Estate, which I also understand. So, but then I would go to bookstores when I was on tour in London to sign, and they would have it in the young adult section, or they'd have it in the adult section, or they'd have it in the kids section. Everyone disagreed. So it almost felt like it almost came down to where you believe personally the Grimm's Tales should be held in a bookstore or library, which, you know, I think is the fun of fairy tales. Did you get a sense of, because obviously one element of whether it's adult or children's one of the impacts is how it's distributed. So whether it goes into schools and school libraries, do you have a sense in, in the UK whether it is still hitting UK schools? I am doing some schools with it for sure. So I, I, there's definitely a bunch of virtual visits and things like that. It's just tricky with this one because the tour aspect is so reduced in terms of going into the schools and seeing. So it's hard for me to be able to 
to tell. I can only see what I see on social media and everything like that. And, you know, it's that kids are still getting it and parents are reading it with their kids and things like that. And it's sort of spreading to both audiences at the same time. But with this one, it's harder for me to tell because I'm not on the ground in there with the kids. Hmm. And earlier you mentioned um, gatekeepers. You talked about reviews coming in or opinions about what is suitable for children or not. I'm wondering both with this and the School of Good or Evil, whether you've self-censored at all or had to because of something your editor or publisher said, or you've just gone with what you want to write. I start by never self-censoring because I just start from the place that kids can handle a lot more than we think, especially in this day and age when they're so sort of inundated with, you know, stuff. So I tend never to self-censor. I have an amazing editor. My editor's named Tony Marquis. She's been at Harper for 45 years. She edited Maurice Sendak, you know, worked with Shel Silverstein. She is in charge of the Narnia estate. She's sort of just, she's a legend there. And she and I both are troublemakers in a lot of ways. We like to push the envelope. And so I really rely on her. She'll come to me and be like, you don't like where it's so funny because I'm going through this right now with her on a book that I'm just in the process of finishing. And it's a lot of her being like, you don't want this. And I'm like, why? She's like, just sit on it and realize that you don't want this because it's going to cause unnecessary trouble and it doesn't help. So, you know, she'll say that and then we'll sort of, um, we'll go back and forth on it. And half the time she's right and half the time I'll, <laughs> I'll persuade her otherwise. So Cinderella comes after Bluebeard and Beast and Beauty. And Bluebeard is dark. It's about, you know, a man who's taking teenage boys from orphanages and is quite the predator. And it just took me to a dark place. And I felt it was a really scary kind of intense tale as Bluebeard is supposed to be. But this was particularly harrowing. And so when I wrote Cinderella Next, I wanted it to feel like an Almodovar movie. I wanted it to be like this kind of ridiculous, breathless Spanish sex farce. And so it opens with um, a girl named Magdalena at her melon stand and a prince who gets one look at her melons and then that's it. And Tony was like, I'm going to die. She's like, you are ruining your classic book. And I'm like, it's there for a reason. It's there to change the tone. And I think we argued about the melons down to publication date where she finally was like, oh, I, I get it. I know, I know what you're doing. But it's that kind of, you know, when you have an editor, you really trust I'm laughing because she's like my grandmother. And we just, this is what we always fight about. We always fight about the fact that she's like, I am not a prude, but I've heard that sentence a thousand times. I love that you have such a great relationship with your editor. And I love your sense of humor, by the way. I can see that, like, you know, the melons, you know, but it's dotted throughout your work, your humor. Oh, I mean, I have to, when I'm working, I either need to scare myself, make myself laugh or make myself cry. Like, I'm always trying to push one of those three emotions as much as I can, you know. Mm. I want to talk a little bit about writing for the screen and, you know, your experience both in film school and writing a bunch of books and now back into Hollywood, but with your own book. It seems that so much of storytelling for the screen these days does come from books. And I'm curious if you would ever write something directly for the screen, or do you feel like if you want something for the screen, well, your best chance is just to write a book and then try to get it made as a film or as a TV series. What's your take given, given all your experience in Hollywood and, and whatnot? Yeah, I mean, that was the impetus for doing School for Good Evil as a book, honestly, was because I think ultimately the reason I, I sort of allowed that to be a possibility was because there were too many things I was working on in the film world that weren't getting made. And I realized that, well, why not bet on the book? Because the book would definitely come out. 
And then you could potentially get paid twice for the same thing. So I think to me, and also you get to work it out. You get to, to really understand the story at a deep level because you're going to have to do all that work anyway to do a screenplay, flesh it out, understand it, go so deep in it. You're basically writing the novel anyway. So the novel kind of becomes an exercise for whatever you're going to do as a screenplay. So I don't see myself ever writing something directly for the screen again. I just, I think it makes more sense to do it as a book first because it saves time in the end. It seems like it, it's the opposite, but I just feel like you'll get to a better screenplay faster if you've gone through the exercise of writing the book. Hmm. Makes sense. I mean, I think it's what Tarantino did in a lot of ways with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Hmm. He had basically done all the homework. So then he wrote the screenplay, made the movie, and then I think he went back and wrote the book. But the book was already, he already had so much of it kind of pre-written. So, you know, I think that was sort of a case in point of it would have made more sense for him to do the book and then do the screenplay. So, but in any case, in his case, he knows the screenplay is going to get made. I think it makes more sense to do the book first because the book in a lot of ways is more marketable than a spec script. Great. Um, I'd love to talk about something you said to Tim Ferriss. You mentioned how you had a piece of paper. I did this quite a few years ago. When you're on a call to Hollywood, you have this piece of paper that says, they are lying. And I wonder, do you still have this sign? And can you tell us if this is why you have it? And is this true? Does this hold true with the publishing industry for you as well? Um, okay. So these are such good questions. When you're first starting out in Hollywood, you have to have that sign up when you take a call because they are definitely lying to you. They just are. It's the way of doing business, unfortunately. It, whether it's blowing smoke at you or telling you that like something's definitely going to get made or telling you something. I even had it as recently as a few months ago. We were working on something. And um, I was like, well, when do we need this ready? When do we need this pitch ready? And they were like, oh, three weeks. Like it has to be done in three weeks. So I'm busting my butt to get it done in three weeks. It turns out we don't need it for eight months. So, <laughs> you know, it's just the way people sort of lie in order to further their own agenda. It's just a whole different thing. Now it's a little different, I think, because I'm sort of in the system in terms of with the movie and all those sorts of things. So I can be a little more aggressive about calling out when I think something is aligned. Like I'll just be straightforward being like, okay, is this a real deadline or is this just you know, a fake one, or, you know, is that, I can really just challenge and be like, is that really true? Is that really what they think? Like, you know what I mean? Like I can just sort of ask, but I think it's a difficult world because people, their jobs kind of rely on lying to you in a lot of ways. Publishing is very different. I think publishing is very non-confrontational. So I think they appreciate truth tellers in a lot of ways. And usually if they, if they don't want to give you bad news, they'll just avoid giving it to you, you know, versus lying about it. So it's just a different industry. It's a lot softer. It's why I think when I choose an agent for the film world, I always choose the sharkiest, meanest, most aggressive and ruthless. And in the publishing world, I choose always the one that I know everyone will get along with. Thanks for that. That's really interesting. And I'm, in a way, it's comforting to know that the publishing world is softer. But I see what you mean about sometimes pulling back from information. And maybe this is sort of a broader question around trust. And maybe this extends to when publishing is holding back from you, but just broadly, when you're collaborating, seeking feedback, trying to get an answer, do you have any advice for how to know who to trust when you're collaborating, seeking feedback? Yeah, it's difficult. I think, I think it's difficult when you go to, like, I could never do writing groups because I always felt in a writing group, 
there was a sense of only one of us is going to make it out of here alive. You know, there was a Hunger Games feel to the Ren group. Like, I don't know why I couldn't get, I, there always felt a competitive undertone to it. And so I never could really like thrive in those settings. And so to me, it was about, you know, trying to figure out, okay, who do I need to show my work to? Who do I trust? And everyone has to make that sort of decision for themselves. I was lucky enough where, you know, pretty early on, I realized my editor is not someone who is, she's not there to judge the work. You know, like, so I think a lot of people are afraid to show their editor things because they're afraid the editor is going to be like, oh, this sucks. Therefore, I'm going to cancel your contract, right? There's this fear of, of, oh, if I show something that's bad, then I'm going to lose whatever I got. And I think I'm lucky enough where I don't have that with my editor. You know, I can send the first 20 pages of something and she'll come with some very valuable ideas and thoughts that will help guide me the rest of the way. I've never finished a book all the way through and sent it to her. I always send it to her in pieces because then I know if I'm going off track. That's great. So I want to turn a little bit in uh, to your practice and your process of writing. So you're a super busy guy. You've got not only writing, but in non-COVID times, the touring, times like this, talks, engaging with fans, your YouTube channel, Ever Never TV. Curious how you balance the deep work that you need to do, the writing, with everything else. You've mentioned before that you've done batching. Is that still something you do in your week? What's batching? Uh, batching, like batching your days. Maybe you didn't say it that way, but... Oh, yeah, 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 totally. So usually the way I work is I play tennis in the morning from like 7 to 8. Then I'll come back. I'll write from like 9.30-ish to 1. And then I go see my trainer and then I'll come back and write from like 3.30, 4-ish to like 6.30. And so I'll write in like two to three hour blocks that are preceded by like intense exercise because the only way I can write is if I am tired physically. And it's only because I think writing has to be, an, for me at least, it's very unconscious. It has to be controlled by some force that is not my conscious brain. And that only really works if I'm tired. It's a very sort of Zen approach. I sort of have to tire out my sort of resistance, my sort of conscious resistance in order to access the writing elves. It's very, if there's a great book about this by Stephen Pressfield called The War of Art. Fantastic. Who really sort of nails it down, which is like, you know, if you rely on your conscious brain to do the writing, it's so limited. And in the case of the School for Knievel, I had 150 characters and 70 different plot lines. And I never had notes or anything like that. Like I never had a notebook or files or anything like that. I just trusted the internal engineering to do the work. And so, yeah, it's a very sort of, it's a faith-based process. The belief that I am not the writer, I am the manager. And as long as I manage correctly, someone else will do the work. It's kind of freeing. Yeah, that surrender. Uh, there's a phrase that someone used with me once that was try, he said, try softer. And it sounds like a little bit of trying softer instead of trying to white knuckle yourself into what you're doing. Yeah, it helps a lot because you don't also develop an ego about your work, you know, because I know I'm not the one doing it. So any like is what's funny is anytime I meet school for the evil fans now, because I'm separated from the book, everyone thinks I'm a narcissist because I'll literally fangirl with them about certain things in the book because I don't feel like I wrote it. I feel like there was another part of me that did, but like I could look back and be like, holy shit, that was such a good twist or that was such a cool thing because I don't feel like I did it, you know? And so I think it alleviates the pressure. 
Cause I never feel like, Oh God, how am I going to top myself? I feel like that is someone else's problem <laughs> and not mine. And so it's just about being very attuned, but you have to be super attuned to what's happening inside you. Like I know when I'm not getting enough time to write because I can feel this swell of rage start to come up whenever other obligations start getting booked in. Like it happened a few weeks ago. There was a week where there was too many, people were putting too many things in the calendar. And I just felt this almost like, it was almost this primal kind of like tidal wave of pure rage where I was just, I remember sending an all caps email, which I never do, which was basically like, if any of you ever want to book for me ever again, stop booking me for things. (laughs) And everyone stopped. But it was this like, it was suddenly this moment of, like, oh, that wasn't me. That was literally the writing elves. Those are the elves, yeah. Yeah, like we no longer have the space to do what we need to do. And I think five or six years ago, I wouldn't have been in touch with those. And I just think time and experience and maturity has allowed me to kind of be very aware of what I need in order for that part of me to do the work. Mm. Now, when you set off for these sessions of kind of surrender and letting the elves do the work, do you have a, a structure? Do you structure this at all? Do you outline what you're doing? So it kind of gives it a framework within to work or you just say, whatever wants to come, I'm just going to let it flow. I think it's that when I'm working on a chapter, I do sort of a brain dump. So every chapter starts with like, like an hour or two hour where I'm just kind of flowing with it. Like I'm just sort of like, and it's typed almost like I'm texting myself the story. Like, I'm like, and then this happens and then he jumps over there and he says, go away and da, da, da. And I'm just sort of like brain dumping the story. And I'm not even, I'm not backspacing. I'm not deleting anything. I might be adding things here and there. I'm not even looking at it. I'm not analyzing it. And I'll do that until I get to the end. And then I'll usually hit like a big plot twist at the end of the chapter. And once I have that dump of just like sort of pure creativity in a lot of ways, I'll look at it and be like, okay, what is this? And does this actually work? And once I start to see like, oh, okay, this is how it's structured. This is what I want to do. Then I start from the beginning and I start to actually like build it. But first I need the Play-Doh. So I think when I'm most stressed is when I have to do that. Cause I'm, it's always like, okay, are the elves going to come through? Like, am I going to come up with something? Cause I don't know what's going to come out. I don't know what the twist is. I don't know where I'm headed, but in that little two hour block is where I get sort of the the material for the next chapter. Hmm. And I'm curious, do you do any mental shifts or physical shifts to go from Play-Doh mode to then, okay, I'm going to look at this and see if it works. Like, I know we've heard of people like, okay, I'm going to put my hat on because this is the role I'm playing now. Are there any physical or other sort of shifts that you do to get into the different head spaces? Not really. It just is as simple as you go from kind of being very open and very like, almost like you're not there. You know, you're just channeling to then being very like focused and more analytical, you know? So it's just, it's, it's almost like the difference between conjuring and then editing. It's a different brain space. But you also have to remember at this point, I've done seven books and, you know, they're quite lengthy. Uh, the first six of these are quite lengthy. So it's such a pattern process. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And you've trusted the process now that it works. Yeah, that it works. Uh, you know, at least for these kind of books. If I do a completely new series or something like that, we'll see. But, you know, for these, at least it, it has worked so far. And across these, you know, across these books and across time, have you discovered anything that helps you keep 
the life admin or the non-essential work at bay or boxed? How do you separate it? It's hard. I mean, it's difficult. Other than just being very attuned to when I'm not getting enough time to work on something. You know what I mean? And also like, I know when it's not ready, you know, like I'm going to put in a book into copy editing this week, but in my head, I'm like, uh, it's not there yet. It's not like normally when I send a book to copy editing, it's like in my head, probably like 95% ready to be published. And then the rest is just, you know, the sort of window dressing. This one's maybe like 85. And so I know that there'll just be more, more work ahead. And so it's building in the time and all that stuff. I just never want to get in a place where I put out a book that isn't what I think a hundred percent, you know, perfect in my eyes. And so I'll do whatever I have to, to make sure that ultimately we get there. Even if it drives my publisher crazy, they know I won't put out something I don't think is perfect. I'm curious, you mentioned spending, you said that since the school of good and evil, you've started to spend more money on an assistant and a team to help you with the website. I'm wondering, is there, has that been helpful at all? Like, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that. How do you use, how do you use money to help you free up time? Yes, I think at one level, absolutely. Like, I have a full time assistant. It's a very expensive proposition because you know they've been with me four years and are incredible. And so you know you have to pay commensurate with that, and also you want to pay your assistant as much as possible to keep them. But yes, it frees me up in a million different ways. But at the same time as things get bigger with the school for evil, especially with the movie coming, there's just a lot more sort of obligations. We have to keep a YouTube channel going. Our TikTok is growing a new website, you know, like we do a trailer for each book, you know, like there's just increasing amounts of obligations and things like that, especially weirdly enough during the time of COVID, you can just get requested more and more for, you know, just, uh, I think before it was more kind of in-person stuff, And so it was almost reduced. Now you're accessible to everyone in the world. And so I think you get a lot more requests and things like that. Like there'll be a school in India and and before that wouldn't have been an option. So you do need gatekeepers and you do need to be able to be like, you also need rules for yourself. Like often when an opportunity comes, they'll be like in three months, would you like to do this thing? And you almost have to put yourself out three months and be like, if it's a really busy day, we'll be able to do this thing. So I don't know. It's, these are champagne problems, you know, that come once, you know, the books are successful and things like that, but they're also important because at the end of the day, the fulfilling part is the writing. That's the only part I'll ever care about. It's the part that matters to me. So I would drop everything else to focus on that. Yeah. And that's why I'm so curious about that. Cause I think a lot of writers worry about the increasing amount of pressure to be, to answer emails, to be on social media. So it's interesting to me that you've found a way to help keep that at bay having to immediately respond. Yeah, it helps. And also I'm very open about canceling stuff that I can cancel. Like never outside like obligations and stuff, but like all the time we're supposed to film TikToks or film the YouTube channel or a video for this or something. Like that. And I'll just be like, I got to get this chapter done. Let's do it another day. Right. <laughs> like my assistant has heard that 5,000 times because at the end of the day, what's more important, us getting like TikToks up or me working on the book? So as long as the priority is always that, that's all that matters. Is there anything that we or people might be surprised that you still do personally, individually, and you don't delegate? I guess I answer all the 
messages from readers because in my case they're from kids i think if they were from adults i would respond because i don't know adults can handle themselves but if a kid sits there and writes you a note i'm gonna write i'm gonna write them back and it's a lot but i always tend to write back to them especially if it's like a handwritten note or something like that you know or they'll have their dad write me or something like that and i'll write back so that i always do myself and the truth is i do all my social media myself because I think if you start delegating your social media, bad things can happen, you know? So anytime there's a post on any social media, it comes from me. Hmm. Thanks for sharing. We do have a, a bank of questions we weren't able to get to, but Carl, do you have one that's speaking out to you? Let's see if we can pick maybe one. I'm curious about, I guess, some of your dreams and goals. We talk at the salon about the mountaintop, that place, we, whatever it is for us, the dream we're hoping for in years to come. Now, from our perspective, you're quite far up that mountaintop. You're a best-selling author. You have a film coming out. But what might your mountaintop look like for the years ahead? You know, I think it's that I don't want to repeat myself necessarily. I think at some level, you know, School for Good Evil is its own little sort of fantasy corporation that I have to keep beating, you know, at some level. But I'm excited to sort of let that evolve into other avenues, you know, whether it's doing something contemporary or doing something historical fiction or something like that. I just want to keep doing different things, you know? And I think what success kind of affords you ultimately is the opportunity to take a risk and do something new. So to me, I think my mountain is trying to build another little universe like School for Good, but in a completely different, completely different way. I look forward to it. Cool. Great. Where can we stay in touch? If people want to stay in touch with you on the socials, best places. Instagram's probably the best. Uh, so I'm in C, that's where like, I'm pretty good about updating my life in general. Twitter is so much Chinani. I don't really use it that much because Twitter is horrible. <laughs> and evernever.com is the, my sort of home website. And somanchinani.com is my writing website. So evernever.com, somanchinani.com, and somanc on Instagram. Lovely. Well, Soman, thank you so much. Thank you for tuning in to the London Writers Salon podcast. If you enjoyed our chat and you'd like to join us for the next one, please visit londonwriterssalon.com for more information on how to become a member. As a member, you will have access to our interview archive, to our workshops and our cozy online writing community. Whatever kind of writer you are, it is an excellent place to make new creative connections and focus on your craft. And if you struggle to find time to write, you're welcome to write with us at our daily Writer's Hour writing sessions. It runs Monday to Friday, four times a day, and all you need is the desire to write, something to write with, and something to cheers us with. We think it's the world's best virtual co-writing space for writers, creatives, or frankly, anyone who just needs to get some work done. Visit writershour.com to sign up and join us. Until we write again. Mm-hmm.